0: And next week, we'll just try to bring everyone up to speed. But you remember, we—I uh, think we got through chapter one last last week. Does that sound right? Mm-hmm. And we're going to get into this section now, where he talks uh, about uh, in chapter two, um, he talks about the poor and the rich, and partiality. We want to keep in mind what he's already made mention of in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. We talked about the difficulties there of of interpreting that, the different ways that people have taken and interpreted that. We established this view um, if, if you look uh, at verse 11 for the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass its flower falls and its beauty perishes it's the image of judgment so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits so that would, that would seem to indicate more heavily uh, judgment on the rich man that this rich man is synonymous with the unbeliever with the person who serves a mammon and not God I believe that that's probably what James is after that's probably the most accurate reading of this text though there is another reading and that other reading would would go let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation okay well that makes sense he's been exalted in Christ and the rich uh in his humiliation now here you would almost you would almost turn um You'd almost turn rich less into a monetary thing and more into like what Paul would say. Uh, He lists his resume in Judaism and then says, and I count all of this rubbish. So there would be a rich man boasting in his humiliation because he's been brought to nothing save having Christ. So that would be an alternate reading. I think that that's a little less likely because of the judgment that seems to take place at... uh, verse 11 but that's another way interpreters have looked at this and thought about this as we look at this next section we're going to see that James is even more white and black when it comes to the rich and poor and I think we're going to see that this actually does have to do more with those who serve uh, mammon instead of the Lord and so if we read this section in context with the chapter 1 section that would also seem to indicate he's talking about monetary wealth or those who serve mammon instead of God. And then likewise, what comes into the discussion is chapter 5, where he warns the rich outright. Chapter 5, verse 1, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. And there he seems to talk about those who serve mammon instead of God. So, you know, while there are these different interpretations and different ways of looking at it, I think if you take the whole context of James, you put it all together, what he has in mind with the rich are those who serve mammon and not God, and yet claim to serve God. And the poor are those who serve Christ and not mammon.
1: So, the brothers here, my brothers, that's the Christians of
0: And that's one more wrinkle of complexity. So, um, for example, if you look at uh, chapter 2 that we're going to get into, um, he's, let's just let's just look at this from that angle, starting from that angle that you brought up. So he says, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man you stand over there or sit down at my feet have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts now this doesn't here my brothers doesn't seem to be like the average Christian actually seems to be someone who, is, who has a leadership role in the assembly. This is one of the sections when, when we're debating who my brothers are. Does it mean pastors or does it mean people? It's one of the sections people really point to to say, my brothers means pastors. Because look, the pastor is the only one who would be in control of who sits where and, and especially that line, sit at my feet. Well, that would be common for a teacher, in that time, the teacher stood, uh, or, or uh, you know, it was it was thought, sit at my feet when the teacher is... Actually, the truth is, when Jesus was teaching, he sat down, and everyone else stood. Um, but here, the you sit at my feet would have more to do with the teaching role still indicated. So, while all of that's true, um, and seems to indicate that my brothers would be pastors, and that seems to make a lot of sense... If you look at a verse like um, chapter 3, verse 1. Where he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers. Now that verse seems to indicate that my brothers would be Christians, and teachers would be a subset of my brothers. So maybe my brothers would mean all Christians. Well, you can see why so much ink is spilled on trying to decide... And in the end, I, I don't know what to say other than to say there are these two sides, these two ways of looking at it. And I think it's, I, I just kind of think it's important to keep both in mind. I don't want to be too postmodern, um, but I kind of like to say we ought to entertain both as possibilities and glean what we can from both perspectives. Though
1: Christians, these people, they're still human beings. exactly so, see
0: it. and it's it's very possible not that that then not unlike our own day, but maybe then even more so there was a there was a belief that a rich person is a person blessed by God now I think that's very I think that's true in our culture but in a more subtle way you know we I, I think we more subtly view it as that person's really blessed, or um, God sure, God sure is taking care of that individual.
2: Yeah, we're, we're drawn as humans to celebrity.
0: Yes, there you go. Mm-hmm.
2: Just whether it be money or just fame or whatever, we, we kind of tend to want to worship that or mm-hmm. give give that
0: value. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a great way of looking at it. Yeah, I think that's very true for our culture. Now, in, in this culture, it was more remember it's more of a nitty gritty paganism rather than a materialistic paganism and what I mean by that is the whole religion that surrounds them all of pagan religions are you do X and God gives you Y so if you have a whole lot of Y (laughs) God must be very pleased with you if you have a whole lot of riches you must have done some things right God or the gods have really favored you And poured out their blessing. So it may be more than just the way we look at it It as, well, yeah, of course, take care of the guy with money bags, you know, because he'll take care of you. That's kind of how we would look at it. It might go deeper than that for this culture. They might look at that and be inclined to say the rich man is truly the blessed one, and the poor man, maybe not so much. He might be under God's judgment or wrath. So anyway, it's a, it's, a way of, it's a way of considering that. It um, might be deeper than mere money, um, but of course, money is an important part of it. So anyway, uh, whether this is pastors here and not elsewhere, or whether this is pastors all the way through, or whether it's Christians all the way through, I think the, the main message still st- stays the main message. And as a pastor, I'm going to read and think about this according to my vocation. But as a Christian, you might read and think about this according to your vocation. And, and then the question becomes somewhat unimportant, you know, as to who specifically he may be writing it to. Okay, well, chapter 2, verse 1, show no partial, partiality. So while his example is going to be monetary differences the truth is that he means to communicate is no partiality so not on the basis of education either or status or social prestige or world experiences or any other things that we might use to show good looks versus not Um, whatever things we might use to show partiality he says no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ now I'll point out this de- detail too, because here's yet one more point in the New Testament where it's called the faith. So we hold the faith. In the scripture, my personal faith is to be an empty cup that is filled with the faith. And we share the faith in common. So the faith is what I can form my personal faith to. And you think about it in our day and age, people think of it exactly the opposite way well that's not what I believe or well that's not what I hold or I believe in Christianity but I don't believe in this or that or the other thing in, uh, in the apostolic church that would have been called uh, heterodoxy which means giving God another glory or a different glory or heresy that, that root word is choice you've made a choice in your personal faith to not hold what we hold in common and therefore it is a heresy that is a choice you've made to depart from us because in the, uh, in the apostolic era in the, in the church then and really truly in the church now there is only the faith as Jude says the faith handed down once and for all to the saints so our goal as Christians is to conform our personal and individual faiths to the faith that is, has been given to us uh, by God through Christ Jesus And interesting here that uh, he call, he says, uh, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, he is the center, he is the foundation, and then he is called the Lord of glory. So here, uh, James is describing divinity and describing Christ in a way of worship and praise. He is the Lord of glory. Which,
2: which verse is that, that as you hold the faith?
0: Uh, that's uh, verse 1 of chapter 2 my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory so he is going to build what he and I think this is really important to understanding the deeper essence of what James is about in this section because he's going to build his argument on the foundation of the faith In our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. That's how he begins. And as we're going to see, I think that's how it ends. This little section that he gives. In other words, we ought to to realize he's laid the foundation of the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Now whatever he says, we want to reflect back on that foundation. Now he gives an example of how we might show partiality. This one based on uh, riches or the appearance of earthly riches. So that's verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly... Now, into your assembly would be into your church, into your gathering, uh, on, on our Sunday morning. And on the other hand, a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place... Well, you say to the poor man, you stand over there. So you see seating versus standing. And then uh, the good place uh, versus the over there. (laughs) Or sit down at my feet, um, which would be not a place of honor. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, what's the deeper implication that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory and he is our Lord and in his kingdom we are all equal. But if you show distinctions on the base of money then you've actually judged, you've become judges with evil thoughts. Well, why evil thoughts? Elsewhere the scriptures teach us that the love of money is the root of all evil. So if we take a look at two Christians, and if we were to see it accurately, we would see a man whom Christ has died for, and another man whom Christ has died for. And that's what we would see. Well, who's greater? Neither. Who should we show partiality to? Neither. Who's worth more? Christ paid the same blood for both of them purchased and won them, not with gold or silver, but with his own precious blood, right? So now we, we struggle to do that as we walk into the congregation on Sunday morning to look at every single person there. Um, some people we might not agree with, some people we might not like how they dress, some people we might not like how they look, some people have uh, more in the way of intelligence or education, others have less. Some people have more in the way of uh, gifts and abilities or charisma or friendliness, other people less. The challenge for us is to walk into that assembly and show no partiality. To see each single person as a person whom Christ has died for, having the value of Christ's own shed blood, the value of Christ himself. Now therein lies the challenge. We
1: don't see that actually. That too
0: much. No. <laughs> and thus, J- thus the timelessness of James' words here yeah this problems i mean this problem is every bit as much alive in the church today well and and just to be absolutely honest it's even at the macro and leadership levels of our congregation it's it's a constant challenge the one who has money and wants to dump money into something does he have a louder voice than the man who has nothing ah boy that's a struggle it's an ongoing struggle to be faithful to that it's an ongoing struggle to to repent where we have Erred and fallen into that very human way of thinking.
2: What's the policy or philosophy of uh, designated gifts here at Faith? I mean, uh, that's a way in which the rich can kind of influence the direction. It, are they permitted, authorized, allowed? Yeah.
0: We, we've built in a safeguard that um, all designated gifts need to be officially and formally received by the congregation right now that that's for a number of reasons one of the reasons is so that someone doesn't offload like their entire house of 1970s furniture upon death I granted all to faith and here come the trucks and now we're stuck right or some such thing where you get a gift that really isn't that much of a gift but the other the other safeguard is so that someone doesn't say I'd like to see X happen in the church right And apart from any agreement or authorization by the church as a whole, as a body, they just fund it and do it, and there it is. Right? That would be a way that the rich can control something. The direction. Mm -hmm. So we've built that safeguard in uh, to our our governance and structure here at Faith as a congregation. But it remains uh, a challenge to have that be meaningful or to have that be more than just a rubber stamp. You know, Because after all, you don't want to offend someone who's got the means to do this, who might also be a big giver, right? So to live in this, in this way of being blind uh, to what someone has or doesn't have financially, that's the specific example James chooses. But also we talked about other things too. Uh, to be blind to that and to try to be faithful and show no partiality, that's a big challenge. And it's one that I think we're always going to fall short of we're always going to need to repent of and yet just because we fall short and repent doesn't mean we don't need to strive to be that way or encourage one another to be that way, admonish one another to be that way is the term become
1: judges is that like a sin is it judges with evil
0: thoughts yes, it's specifically with evil thoughts yeah, well you know there is a problem setting yourself up as a judge I think this is a subtlety that the scriptures teach, because in some places the scriptures uh, say, judge no one, you know, judge not lest ye be judged, right, the favorite uh, verse to be quoted by anyone who's screwing up, (laughs) (laughs) right, Um, judge not, Uh, gotcha that's that's not, that verse doesn't forbid any kind of judging, it forbids you to judge and make yourself judge, and so if you judge uh, apart from God's word, now you truly have set yourself up as judge and in fact as God because you're saying, I'm going to judge another human being by my criteria or I'm going to judge a teaching or a saying by my criteria um, and that's to be a judge now, this also um, happens frequently um Pastor, I didn't like your sermon. Well, I'm sorry to hear that. It's not my intent to write sermons you don't like. But... Problem, you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but here's the question. Not did you like it or not, but is it faithful to God's word or not? Right? Because I can not like parts of God's word, but they're still true. Mm-hmm. And I cannot like them specifically because they are true or specifically because they did hit me where it hurts, right? So the question isn't, do I like it or not? Did it make me happy or not? The question is, was it true? Was it faithful to God's word? And, and so we, if we judge apart from God's word, I didn't like it, therefore, now we've set ourselves up as God over God's word. It's just that subtle. But if we say, you know, I didn't like it, but it was true, um, that's a pretty high compliment because I say that about scripture. I read a part of scripture and I go, I'd be lying if I told you I like that. It, it basically shows me that I'm a sinner and shows me the depth of my depravity and I don't like that one bit, but it's true. and I'm thankful for that. So, uh, the scriptures say, judge not, lest you be judged. And that's what they're talking about, judging others by your own standard. But we are to judge. On the basis of God's word, and then that's not us judging, but God Himself judging. You see the difference? So someone says, you know, well, what do you think about this? Well, not not what I think, but what does God think? And this is what I also hold because He's God and I'm not. That's not judging. That's using God's word, and we're called to do that. So someone says, you know, hey, uh, I, I'm going to beat up whoever I want to beat up, and you say, that's wrong. Judge not, lest ye be judged. Uh, no, it's not me judging. It's God's word that says, thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not hurt or harm your neighbor in his body. That's wrong. It's not me who's your judge. It's God who's your judge. And I happen to be in harmony with that and I'm communicating that to you, right? You see the difference? Yeah, so, so a subtle but very important point. Now, though James doesn't go this, this road with his congregation because it's not where they're at, it's still something we ought to stop and ponder. Because sometimes I think out of a pious desire and love for poor people or the underdog, um, we might actually end up showing partiality to the poor person, which is equally forbidden, because James says, show no partiality, right? And so sometimes in my mind, uh, I find myself flipping. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show no partiality to the rich, so instead of just trying to put everyone on the same level, I actually tend—you know—that's the way my mind works. I'm like Luther's uh, drunken monk, who always goes from one error and corrects himself into the other error and can't ever get straight on the on Both the donkey. You know, suspense. exactly right. Both sides are errors. So it says show no partiality, and there we see that it's that we can't also fall into uh, um, showing partiality towards those who might be. Uh, Poor or lesser or less educated or less attractive or no partiality—that's the point. Well, then we talk last week about orphans and widows. I mean, wouldn't that fall into the category of poor? Mm-hmm. That's true. That's true. And he said that immediately prior. So here he says uh, in verse 27 of chapter one, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this: to visit and. Uh, or to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So, again, I made the comment, I said, so therefore we ought to forsake everything else we're doing and find the nearest orphanage, right, and the nearest widows and only take care of them. Well, that's not James' point. That would be showing partiality toward them. James' point here is rather that we ought to look upon those who uh, have nothing, and go out and serve them, those who have no one to care for them, protect them, guard them, guide them, provide for them. And why is that? Well, as he said, um, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this. And he makes mention of God as the Father because God is the provider, the Father of orphans and widows. So if we wanna conform our heart in the heart of God, to the heart of God, we'll look for those who have not and fill their need. Now that's different than showing partiality though. And I think that that's, uh, if, if otherwise James would be contradicting himself between yeah, chapter 127 and, and chapter 2 verse 1, in, in a matter of two verses, he'd be contradicting himself. I don't think that's what he means. I don't think he means you have to be partial to widows and orphans. I think he's saying you need to see the need and take care of it. And that may be true if, I mean, imagine a rich person, right? Um, Despite what we think, wealth doesn't mean happy. And so you find a a wealthy person, and what their need might be is friendship. What their need might be is that they're lonely, or they actually have needs that money can't touch. So would James say, uh, go and visit them in their affliction? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and if anything, I think that might be the key phrase in that verse 27, uh, in their affliction.
1: If they were doing that particular thing, uh, visiting orphans and widows, theoretically, that would eliminate the partiality.
0: Yeah. Yeah, in theory it would.
1: If you're doing what God tells you,
0: then
1: the other thing wouldn't be necessary, but
0: yeah, right. I think you're exactly right. Yeah, I think you're right. It's uh, it's conforming oneself to, uh, again, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father. In other words, it's before God the Father. If you want to have religion toward God the Father, you conform yourself to what God the Father does. Namely, going to people in their affliction and helping them. And then on the other side, though, not showing partiality. It's as if kind of one is the corrective of the other. A little bit. Yeah. Are you going to make a comment, Barry?
2: I was going to just comment on disaster-type things. You know that if we look and examine the need, in, consistent with the Father's sovereign provision, mm-hmm. then we know where that's a good check and balance. Because God, we we know God would want shelter and food for people who have been in a hurricane or mm-hmm. a tornado. You know, so we that's consistent, that's not looking at my, you know, I'm not trying to glorify myself in doing anything there, so Mm
1: -hmm.
2: a lot of people say well, why are you off in Guatemala when you know that there's somebody up in Santa Ana who has a need for Christ you know, Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. you're going to get that type of criticism, I guess or why are you going off to uh, Habitat for Humanity, building a home somewhere, I guess the world's always going to criticize the motives and Mm -hmm what we do as christians we we can just examine ourselves and see whether it's consistent with uh, the need and whether it's consistent with God's provision for those people
0: mhm mhm i think that's very well said and i think i think that's true and yeah it's kind of a faulty logic to say i can't provide for this person 2 blocks away because one block there's someone you know, who else you know that's kind of a faulty logic if you bring it down to that level so you're right um I would also say, though James encourages us, you know, this is true religion to visit, or, or religion is pure and undefiled to visit orphans and widows. That's um, work that comes without praise and without glory in the eyes of people, and it's work that can be done very quietly. It's quiet work by nature, and it's it's thankless work by nature. I think there's something to be said for that. And something for us to consider critically, um, that while, while a thing in itself might be okay, um, some of the opportunities we have, like habitat, like food kitchens, like donating time and resources here, while some of that might be okay and good, we need to be careful that it doesn't turn into something more akin to a medieval pilgrimage, or uh, something I, I need to do in order to have a true and authentic relationship with God. Um, something I need to do in order to feel like I'm actually doing God's work. Because that would be a that would be a misunderstanding of vocation. You know, if God is if God has called you to be a housewife and you can't afford to go to Africa for two weeks, um, that's okay, and you're still doing God's work, and that's still blessed and to realize that you don't have to go do this other thing in order to impress God or anyone else, you know. So, so that's, um, I think that's an important thing for us to think about because I've noticed some trends, particularly in American evangelicalism, where it's like unless you have a quote-unquote ministry, you're not doing God's work. Yeah, virtue ministry. Yeah, and that's a, that's a denial of a vocation, that doing God's work is being a husband, a wife, a mother, a father, a, a worker, that you don't have to go on those opportunities to do, take those opportunities in order to be a true Christian. Now, does that mean in and of themselves they're bad? Absolutely not. That's not what I'm saying either. Um, we just can't let those things become idols or let those things uh, become more important than the other vocations that God has given us
1: and then sometimes God gives the opportunity uh, finds knows somebody who can fill a job mm-hmm. uh, for instance Marlon was asked to go to India mm-hmm. I mean that's not a fun place to be and, but he helped a lot of people there and God gave him that opportunity yes uh, that was a blessing.
0: yes exactly exactly yeah, so I think as Christians we just want to think critically and, but, and faithfully about what it is that we're called to do what it is that we do, how we serve and again, why, why I brought that up is because pure and undefiled uh, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this to visit orphans and widows in their affliction that's quiet work it's work that doesn't take a lot of extra, extravagance or planning or, and it's, it's work that's going to be thankless and all of that's good and, and I think that that's, you know, uh, Pharisees would do great and wonderful good works. And how did Jesus put it? I forget exactly. But he said that they would, he makes mention of how far they would travel to make one convert. And then they make him twice the son of hell. Remember when Jesus makes that comment? He's talking about the Pharisees' zealousness to do a good work for the sake of doing a good work. And maybe secondarily for the sake of other people seeing them. But well, they did this very large personal sacrifice, but it was for the sake of themselves, knowing that they did this very large personal sacrifice. It's like a good work unto myself. You see? And that, and Jesus criticizes that as, well, who are you serving with that good work? Your neighbor or you? Well, more me. It's kind of
1: like an adult marriage bed.
0: Situation. Right, 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 yeah. Yeah, and it all is just eerily reminiscent um, if you look back at what at what monasticism was at what pilgrimages were um, these things in the uh, Middle Ages that we say oh well we left all those eerily similar um, some of our retreats <laughs> some of our retreats some of our missions some of our things we do are eerily similar uh, because those criticisms are leveled you know instead of instead of paying for yourself to go on a pilgrimage all over Europe we not wearing shoes what if you took that money that you were, you know, and actually put it to use? It would go a lot further for, your, for the good of your neighbor than you hiking all over Kingdom Come. Well, anyway, probably enough on that. Um, the point is that God calls us to uh, visit those in affliction and those who are helpless around us. And yet to not show partiality, um, James is wise enough, and his circumstances in his church are such that he knows, I think, the greatest temptation is going to be to show partiality to those who are rich, to those who have means, to those who can quid quid pro quo, right? I scratch your back, you scratch mine. You sit in the good seat, maybe I'll benefit from that relationship. So that's what he's chastising, and he brings up this example of a man with a gold ring and fine clothing coming into the assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing coming in. And then he talks about uh, how if we make distinctions among ourselves and I think that's the key um, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves whereas in Christ we're all one so have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts and the evil thought in particular here the love of money which is the root of all evil Paul tells us then he says in verse 5 listen my beloved brothers And here's James, why is he he saying all this? Because he loves the brothers, because he cares about them, because he wants them and their assembly to be right. Not because he's chastising them or mean-hearted. He just wants, wants them to be squared away. My beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? This is part of the great reversal motif. Um, You find this throughout the Old Testament, also throughout the uh, New. Um, But um, you remember uh, Mary's song, the Magnificat, how she sings. Um, Maybe let's just go there and look at it. Because this is the reversal theology. And Mary, Mary gets this because she gets the Old Testament. Mary was a student. She learned. She knew theology. And her song is a reflection of that. So Mary's song of praise is in Luke chapter 1, right around verse 46. And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. So apparently Mary felt that she had sin and needed a Savior as well, contrary to Roman Catholic theology. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. So do you see the reversal already? The humble estate of his servant. She goes from humble to all generations calling her blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. Now there's another reversal. It's those who fear him, those who respect him, those who are low in themselves who receive his riches and his grace and his mercy. Those who are high and haughty and mighty don't receive his mercy. Continuing her thought from generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. And here's the key. He has scattered the proud and the thoughts of their hearts. He's cast down the proud. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate there's the great reversal there's the fulfillment of the Old Testament and uh, the singing of the new of this fulfillment of the great reversal he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate he has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent empty away now notice what Mary does she's doing the same thing as James isn't she does, he mean, does, does Mary mean that God despises all people who have money? Or that God despises all Americans because relative to everyone else we're rich? That's not Mary's point. Mary has these categories of uh, mighty and humble, of rich and poor, and of believing and unbelieving, of those who receive God's mercy and those who reject God's mercy. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent empty away. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Okay, so that gives us insight into what James is talking about here in this verse with the great reversal. Um, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? that's just simply a reflection on what Mary's already taught us then in verse 6 of chapter 2 but you have dishonored the poor man there's the accusation the way he writes the poor man if you look at this in Greek it stands out and it makes you stop and it makes you pause the poor man who on earth is the poor man is it just aren't there many poor men that they have done this to the poor man the more you pour over that and the more you think the more you remember um, what he said in verse 1 my brothers show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory and you remember that he the Lord of glory but he emptied himself the scriptures say he took on the form of a servant right he who is rich the prince of heaven everything is his empties himself, becomes poor becomes a servant, comes in lowliness uh, born of a humble virgin Mary he is the definitive poor man and where he shows his poverty to the utmost is on the cross where he allows himself to be stripped of all things right down to his clothing right stripped off and he truly has nothing Um, his mother he gives uh, as the mother of John Um, His disciples have gone away from him. He has nothing whatsoever. He is the poor man. And then he even renders his life. And remember we talked in Sunday about that being an active giving. Christ has to die actively. So he empties himself of his life. He gives his life. He offers his life. This is what's at the heart of Jesus noticing the widow who puts in uh, her mites and puts in all that she has. And he comments on this to the disciples. This is the deeper meditation of Jesus, and what he teaches the disciples is he sees in that woman in her offering a picture of what he will do on the cross, giving everything he has, emptying himself out. So he is the poor man. Now, why does James bring this to mind with this phrase, "the poor man"? Simply to recognize that in the poor man that we might show partiality against or that we might despise, that is Jesus himself embodied. Remember as Jesus says, whatever you do to the least of these my brethren, you do unto me. So with this one phrase James kind of sticks us when we suddenly realize that it's not the poor man we've been against, it's the poor man, Christ himself who we've sinned against. And there's the teeth. This is why J- uh, James is such an expert preacher, and expert uh, in use of the law and gospel, but here the law. Then he goes on to speak of uh, the rich in an iconic way, in the way that Mary did, in a way that speaks of uh, the rich as those who have no need for God and those who serve mammon and not God in the words of Jesus. So he says, but you have dishonored the poor man, are not the rich ones who oppress you, uh, the rich one, are not the rich the ones who oppress you, and the ones who drag you into court, are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? So there you get it. The rich are persecutors of Christians, blasphemers of Christ's name, the honorable name, Christians, Christ, by which you were called so here even more clearly we see what John means by the poor man the Christian, the one who is in Christ who is the poor man and then the rich are those who oppress the poor man who oppress you and who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called these are those who are unbelievers who serve mammon and not God does that make sense? Okay, uh, James' expertise in preaching the law continues, and I think this is just really an amazing meditation, this next part, how it ties in. If you really fulfill the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. So the whole law, especially the second table, can be summed up in love your neighbor as yourself. And that's what he's been talking about. Now if you show partiality to someone else, you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. So you're guilty of the law. That's his argument. You're convicted by the law as transgressors. Now he's talking to Christians, isn't he? So this is this is an example of a, a Christian pastor preaching to Christian people. And he's doing law and gospel, isn't he? Right now he's revealing sin in the lives of the congregation that he's speaking to. So that's part of the Christian pastor's job. And that's what he's doing. Then he says in verse 10, For whoever whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. That's key. That's absolutely key. By the way, this verse I think is, is... absolutely key in understanding what comes next that gives Christians so much trouble about this justification by faith and works business um, in, my Bible, in my other Bible my personal Bible I've got this verse highlighted and circled and a giant arrow drawn over to that section because this is the key um, because he says whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it that negates him talking about any justification by works in the next section because he brings up two examples. Abram, or Abraham as he's later called. Do we know of any sins of Abram or Abraham recorded in the scriptures?
2: Yes. Yeah.
0: Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, then, so then read that according to James' own words. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable for all of it. You see, so Abraham was not justified in the sense that he merited justification by his good works. No, rather the law condemns him. He's accounted righteous by God's grace and mercy. So, so also with Rahab, who's the other example that James brings up, which is hilarious, and it's hilarious the um, medieval Roman Catholics pointed to this verse to prove their doctrine, because Rahab was a prostitute. prostitute. <laughs> and this is the very person, now if you're, if you're James, and you're going to teach the Roman Catholic doctrine that you are justified by faith and works, So be a good person, buck up, do the right things, and merit righteousness before God. Would you pick a known prostitute as your example? Or would you pick Abram as your example? By no means. These people are condemned by the law just as we are. Rather, it points out the continuity between James and Paul, that God is the one who justifies even the ungodly. right? Um, Or as Paul says, I think more specifically in Romans, uh, who justifies the man, or he he justifies the man who does not work on account of faith? Even the ungodly man he justifies. All right. So uh, back to James, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable of all of it. Now James doesn't stop. That becomes the key verse to understanding what follows. For he who said, "Do not commit adultery," also said, "Do not murder." If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Now stop and think about what James has done. If you're guilty of one commandment, you're guilty of all of them. Okay? So you're going to say, you might boast, I haven't committed adultery, so I followed that law. James' point is going to be, no, you actually haven't. You've actually committed adultery. And here's how his argument goes. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. Why is he going to say that they are potentially murderers? Or not, I shouldn't even say potentially. That's, a, that's exactly what he's accusing, in a masterful, pastoral way. He's accusing them of murder. What is it that they've done that is murderous? No, not here. More, more than, than that, they've shown partiality and thereby murdered their poor brother. Okay. Now, I know that might be a difficult argument for us to wrap our minds around, but that's essentially what he's saying. Is if, and, and elsewhere, he's going to get to this uh, point. For example... Look at where he's going with verse uh, 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, in other words, is naked, and lacking in daily food, and is starving, naked and starving, and one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? Now there all of a sudden the accusation rings home, doesn't it? Murder. Because you're allowing your neighbor to be naked and exposed to the elements. You're allowing your neighbor to starve to death, to go without daily food. So follow his argument because it's very subtle but he's, going to, he's accusing them of murder and if murder then also adultery. Guilty of all the commandments. Now adultery in a Jewish Christian mind is always a double-edged sword because it means more than just um, horizontal adultery, person to person, adultery. That kind of adultery is a picture of what kind of adultery? That's the chief adultery. Unfaithfulness to God. And so, unfaith. So uh, often idolatry is just simply ex- explained in Old Testament terms as being adulterous against Yahweh, right? Um, so I think where where James is going with this not to lose the forest for the trees, is he's accusing them, they would exonerate themselves of adultery. He's going to show them that they are guilty of murder. And then if they're guilty of murder, they're also guilty of adultery. And adultery here is going to ring true now in the vertical sense of being adulterous toward God, which is the chief point that he's going to make when he says, because they're boasting in their faith, Right? And it's it's where he's going in verse nineteen when he says, "You believe that God is one; you do well. But even the demons believe and shudder. You see, you believe in God, but you're acting adulterously against Him because you're murdering your brother." All right, that's uh, that's a way of tying and making sense of this whole section, how it all runs together. Um, but let's just let's just go back and look at what he says. Uh, just kind of dive into the forest now and inspect the trees so verse 11 as we've been reading for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder if you do not commit adultery but do murder you have become a transgressor of the law so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty now that's a shock that's a change. Because you would expect James to say, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of God, the law that convicts you as transgressors. Sh- so shape up. But instead, he says, The law of liberty, of freedom. This is James' way of turning and suddenly going from law to gospel. This is the hinge. This is why James is such an excellent preacher. Right? This line right here is stunning. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law. And everyone's thinking, oh, here it comes. And then he says, of liberty. Now look what follows. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Okay? There's the judgment of the law. But mercy triumphs over judgment. There's the gospel. You see, so what he's done all of a sudden is he's introduced the gospel with the law of liberty, and then he's gone back to the law that he was just previously preaching, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Then, gospel, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. If you let that, if you let this these verses soak in, you'll find profound, profound gospel. We're not judged by the law as Christians, the law meaning the Ten Commandments that condemn us, um, that if we've broken one, we're guilty of all. We're judged by the law of liberty, of freedom. Now, does that mean we're off the hook? I can do whatever I want, I can show partiality and abuse my brothers. No. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. There's the law established. And yet, mercy triumphs over judgment. Now that simply means this. That Christ, who shows us mercy, triumphs over the judgment that we deserve. Mercy triumphs over judgment. It's a breaking through into the uh, it's a breaking through of the gospel in James homily it's a breaking through of the gospel of that poor man who shows mercy on us and of that uh, as we go back to the beginning of this section faith in our Lord Jesus Christ the Lord of glory the one who shows mercy that triumphs over judgment because in the end that's what we hold as Christians don't we boy if mercy doesn't triumph over judgment I'm in big trouble yes uh,
2: I'm struggling with this thought of uh, if I don't, if I don't uh, I mean, what, what, what does it say here uh, adultery and murder if I which one is which here it's basically if I don't commit adultery mm-hmm. I am sti- I'm guilty of committing murder is that
0: it? well he's trying to say he's trying to say if you, if you break the law in one place yeah. you've broken it all okay so you may say you're free from committing adultery but you have committed murder if you've committed murder you've committed adultery because if you break the law in one place you've broken it all
2: That's so just that
0: would be just a, that would just be a very quick uh next connecting thought of Of James, because remember that's his thought is whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become accountable of all of it. So now he says, imagine a scenario. Let me illustrate what I mean. Um, And there he says, for he who said, "Do not commit adultery," also said, "Do not murder." That's the law. If you do not commit adultery, in other words, you've kept that commandment, but you do murder, you have become a transgressor of the whole law. Exactly. Yeah, he, you could do this with any, with any of the commandments. Now, I think, I think that why he chooses murder and adultery, I think there's a reason. I think there's a method. James is very methodological. And I think that he's getting at the fact that they are murderous in their partiality and murderous in specifically with what comes next, that if a brother or sister is naked or starving and you don't help them, that's murderous. And now I think he chooses adultery as the other one, the one they say they've kept, is he's doing something that's very Jesus esque. You know, you've heard it say, do not commit adultery. And everyone goes, yeah, I haven't, right? And he says, but I tell you, anyone who looks at another with lust in his eye has committed adultery with her already, right? So Jesus has kind of this gotcha moment with the law. I think James is doing something very similar. And the gotcha moment is, you think you haven't committed adultery but you have murdered and you are guilty of murder and therefore you're also guilty of adultery and in fact the whole law you're guilty of now I I would take us one step past that reflection and say that adultery is likely chosen by James because it is such a loaded Jewish Christian word that they are realizing that in hating their neighbor who has not they are actually despising God and adulterous toward God which is the code word in the Old Testament for unfaithful to God And see, thematically, this all ties back into that concept in chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction. He's saying, you're not doing that. You're murdering that. Not only are you not doing that, but the naked person, you're not clothing. You're murdering that. The starving person, you're not feeding in your midst, the Christian you're murdering them. If you're guilty of murder, you're guilty of a, the whole law, adultery included, but that also means you're guilty before God. You're adulterous before God. You're not sh- showing the pure religion of God the Father. So the whole thing, is it law heavy? It's law heavy. It's It's condemnation heavy. But this is the way that he's dealing with his congregation who evidently has this mindset of, here is, in our midst, a brother who can't clothe himself or feed himself. And my mentality is going to say, go in peace, be warm and well fed, but I'm not going to do anything We're talking
1: for you. It's you about just Christians? Because you go down the street and somebody's got a sign that says, please help me, I'm homeless.
0: It's, it's most likely Christians because of what he says in verse 15. If a brother or sister... And so there he's almost certainly talking. Christians. So what's now, the responsibility well it has an obligation there too the scriptures say something to the effect of uh, uh, as opportunity presents itself show kindness to those of the household of God and also as you're able those outside so that's been our attitude in the first place we have we have almost no freedom at all we need to take care of our own because we're a family and to not take care of your own is to not take care of your family it's to miss the whole thing it's to be guilty of murder Second to that, to reach out with, the gospel, with not only the gospel, of course, but with uh, clothing and food and help to the whole world. Yeah, Christians have always done that. Um, but there is, there is a kind of a duality in the scriptures that say, do both. But there's such a... Well, Paul says of a man who can't take care of his own family, that he's worse than an unbeliever. And there's a, and then he's talking just in the secular, like if you won't, if you won't work and provide for your own family, you're worse than an unbeliever.
1: So you provide for your own, but then yeah. you could be busy continuously because there's never an end to those who are in need in the
0: world. Absolutely. So I was going to ask the question:
2: Do we have a lot of people knocking on the door during the week here asking for a donation from the world?
0: Not a lot. No. And the ones we do have are usually dishonest.
2: Okay. Yeah. So I have to be discerning. And-
0: yeah, Pastor Odel says I think in the twenty-five plus years he's sat here, he thinks he hasn't gotten ripped off once. We st- we still give, but we tend to uh, because people run a scam around here, and I had to learn all this as a pastor when I came here. But uh, they they run a scam where they they set themselves up in a hotel, and then they just live there, calling church to church to church with the same story. I'm getting on a bus tomorrow. Can you? And they either get you to pay your hotel or buy. An, or whatever anyway and so we take all their information now and then we call the hotel and you get a sense from the hotel verify yeah to verify and you just you just realize are, am i being scammed or am i helping someone and if they give you the indication that you're being scammed we generally choose not to not to help in that instance but although you know there there's a time to let yourself be scammed too so So sometimes we just let ourselves be scammed and go and fill a gas tank. I mean, I did that for a guy. His story made no sense. If I was ever sure that someone was lying to me, he was lying to me. But there he was in my office talking about theology, talking about his sin, talking about everything else. Was it all a scam? Probably. But that's not really my business. So when he asked if he could get his gas tank filled to get back home, I said okay.
2: I had one of those guys in the church parking lot. It was empty it, it church parking lot was emptied out and I was there for a half hour talking with him. He wanted to get the gas filled and make it to San Diego. And I I didn't. I said, you know, you should go to the church office. Yeah. Knowing that I'm not sure anybody was there, but I, I listened to him, took the whole thing and he almost, you know, the story was, you know, like you say, it was uh
1: Constant challenge. the yeah. where's the verse that says if he
2: asks you for this, give him even more. Mm-hmm. Give him two coats or
0: something, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's a so there's a time to be taken advantage of. That's true. Sometimes for love of neighbor, though, there's a time to uh, be circumspect and realize that you might be furthering them in their sin. So it's a you know, so it's a stewardship thing. I think you have to take each instance on it, on its own, really. Because it, you know, if I know that a guy's gonna Something bad with that money or whatever, I'm probably not inclined to give well, it to somebody
1: for money. you always to go drink, you
0: want to food. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Well, well, so uh, we've done a lot of technical work in this section and we're a little over time, um, but you know, again, I, what I've tried to do is show. You know, if nothing else, let's just say at the bare minimum what he's trying to say is if you break one commandment, namely murder, then you're guilty of adultery. Okay, you're guilty of the whole law. That's his point.
1: And we know we're all guilty.
0: Of right. Breaking all yeah, and, and I and of I, I of all of them. All of them. Yes, <laughs> of all of I mean, them, like right. That. Right. And I and it's I'm tying this, but not good at <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Exactly. The seventh commandment got it and uh yeah. Um so, so James James uh, you know, convicts us of all of it. And it's very likely that in his choosing of the commandments, he's trying to point us outside of this horizontal way of looking at the law to a vertical way where it's, you know, if anyone says he he loves his brother um, but does not love him, he also does not love God. That logic and teaching of uh, John, for example, in John's epistles. So the idea is if you're not clothing your brother and sister who are right there in need, then you can hardly say, I've got pure religion with God. In fact, you probably have an adultery, uh, an adulterous relationship, um, an unfaithful or idolatrous relationship with God. So I think that that's what James is subtly getting at here, people to realize that a breach in the, with your neighbor is a breach against God. Now, while he's laid down the law heavy with his congregation, he's done that because he wants them to actually uh, do something, right? And to not think that this is okay or compatible with Christianity, with who they are in Christ, um, it's fascinating because he doesn't just leave them under that law as if that law is what should motivate you. Because the New Testament, one of the teachings in the New Testament is that the law does not motivate us to good works. It does not motivate us in the sense of making our hearts want to. It makes us fearful of judgment and uh, wanting to get in line and wanting to not fall into condemnation and doing it. But that's not the same as Doing it out of freedom and love. And I think that's one of the stunning things about what James says um, in verse 12. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Not the law of compulsion, but the law of liberty. It's it's almost as if, you know, Pastor Hodel and I have kind of joked, could you preach an entire sermon that's law? And, it, and at the end, it condemns everyone in the room, yourself included. And at the end, saying, We would all go to hell if not for Christ and just end it. What a, what a powerful rhetorical sermon that would be. And I think, and even though you only mentioned Jesus once <laughs> in 15 minutes, you know, and I think James is doing something very similar here because he's like, Pound and pound and pound and pound in the law, and getting us to see it and getting us uh to realize that we've fallen short, and then at the end he does just this little bit, doesn't he? But consider yourselves as ones to be judged by the law of liberty, and then this last line, mercy triumphs over judgment. you see that's the real foundation I think that's the rhetorical that he's trying to give us is you know. The law is not going to compel you to do these things. Freedom in Christ is going to compel you to do these things. Love is going to compel you. To, mercy that has been shown you, that now you get to show others freely. That's what's going to actually do it. So I think rhetorically, less is more here with James, and he means to emphasize this, these gospel phrases here um, by way of contrast. So anyway, that's maybe where we'll end today, and we'll pick up uh, with verse 14 next week. An hour or so on, like 12 verses. Yeah, sorry about that. No, but I'm saying,
1: um, those people who read this letter,
0: I mean, did they get it? Or did would they have
1: to ponder over these things? I mean, we've got the benefit of the whole Bible. Where ponder over it, yeah. I think... Really? These, uh, you can read those verses tonight
0: the very same is true for uh, every book of the New Testament that comes to mind. The Old Testament too, for that matter. They're written to be preached more than once. They're written to be read more than once. James didn't just sit down like, I don't know, at least I thought this for a long time growing up, and maybe other people did too. It's like the Holy Spirit just kind of zaps you with information, and they're just sitting there scribbling this. I mean, these are well thought out, well planned, literary pieces. We've already seen how chapter one, James introduces the rich and poor man as concepts. Chapter two, he goes into it further. And then what do we say? Chapter five, it. I mean, he's, he's woven this whole theme throughout. We're going to see that in almost a, um, a pattern that, that goes between these, uh, you know, these three, as if you had ABC. Now you've got uh, one, you're going to have this um, be slow to be uh, uh, quick to listen and slow to speak. And then you're going to have, again, between that woven in, you're going to have um, uh, the bit about taming the tongue and the tongue creating a forest fire. So look, he's, he's taken these themes and he's literally woven them together throughout an epistle. And he's done that because this epistle is, is going to be read and preached over and over again in the, li- in the lives of the congregation, in the lives of the people. Um, so they're going to have time to imbibe this and take this in. But it's, I mean, with a good sermon, it's like that too. With a good sermon, you listen to it in church and you hear it and you, you know, you get some major, major points. And then you listen to it again and you're like, and that was there and that was there and that, you know, that's a, a good sermon is written that way or it's all woven together and there's more to be, because it's God's word. And so it's going to continue to be living. Yeah. So, yes, I think they, uh, they spent lots of time on this. I <laughs>